And thank you all for joining us. It's good to be with you today, this beautiful Sunday morning as we are anticipating the Holy Week. Before I begin, I just have a question for all of you. How many of you know what the acronym WWJD stands for? I think probably everybody here does. Sam, do you know what WWJD is? What would Jesus do? Cole, do you know that? All right, didn't raise his hand. Good answer, good question, Sam. Some of you probably remember back in the late 80s, that whole theme of what would Jesus do, WWJD, became very, very popular. I found out this week that actually where that WWJD kind of popularized was actually in Holland, Michigan. How many of you knew that? It was actually a youth group in Holland, Michigan. The youth pastor decided to, in order to get his kids involved and kind of live a godly life, he got them all these little bracelets that said WWJD. And the whole goal with that, as most of you probably know, is that before you do anything, say anything, buy anything, participate in anything, you would say, what would Jesus do? And that whole concept popularized very quickly in the late 80s and it spread all through Michigan and then all parts of the United States and the rest of the world. And so it's common to see WWJD on coffee mugs and on anywhere. It it was everywhere. And almost that whole WWJD became its own subculture in a way. And it became like its own Christian ethic. One of the professors at Fuller Seminary said in the early 90s, that was the Christian ethic. What would Jesus do? And it does make it kind of easy if you're trying to participate in Christian ethics that everything would run by the idea of what would Jesus do? And it's a good idea. It'd be nice if ethics were that easy just to say, what would Jesus do? But as you can imagine, the problem kind of comes in when you have to understand, answer the question. What would Jesus do? How would you answer that question? Because as we know, quickly, when you're going to answer that question, in comes our own biases and our own, see, lunch is getting in the way. In quickly comes in our own biases and our own ideologies that kind of influence how would we answer the question of what Jesus would do. And so I think it's important for us as a church to, as we are going in this Lenten journey, to really understand, if we're going to understand what would Jesus do, we have to understand his character. We have to understand his heart. We have to understand what did he actually do. And so during this Lenten series, we're focusing heavily on Jesus' character because when you know Jesus' character, it influences on how we relate to him and it helps us understand what he would do. I think if we're honest, we would all know sometimes when you're watching TV or you're watching the riots that happened outside the Capitol building, suddenly you see a person with a bunch of Christian t-shirts on and they're doing stuff that's pretty stupid. And you get kind of embarrassed while you're watching that because you're like, oh no, this isn't going to look, this isn't going to go well. You know they're going to kind of give us a bad name. And it's often people, the problem isn't so much their intention, it's simply that they don't know Jesus very well. And so they're not being that good of representatives of Jesus. So we're really focusing this month on how do we know Jesus better. I want to read this quote by David Platt. This is one of my favorite quotes by David. I usually read it about once a year and I think it's been two years. It says, fundamentally, the gospel is a revelation of who God is and who we are and how we can be reconciled to him. Yet in the American dream, where self reigns as king or queen, we have a dangerous tendency to misunderstand, minimize, and even manipulate the gospel in order to accommodate our assumptions and our desires. As a result, we desperately need to explore how much of the understanding of the gospel is American 
and how much of it is biblical. And in the process, we need to examine whether we have misconstrued a proper response to the gospel and maybe even missed the primary reward of the gospel, which is God himself. I love that quote. I think it's important for us to remember as we are coming into Easter that we remember that our goal is to have the mind of Christ and our goal is to go through this kenosis process of emptying ourselves. I want to start by reading a couple of verses from the book of Jeremiah. I love Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2, verse 5, that's probably one of the most popular verses in the Bible. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. We quote this verse a lot, and it gives us a lot of comfort to know that God knew us before we were even born and that God knew us but had a plan for us and a plan and a purpose and a destiny. So God comes to Jeremiah and he reminds Jeremiah that I, I knew, your be, knew you before you were born and I created you with a specific purpose and a specific plan. So God starts telling Jeremiah, I want you to be a prophet that you're going to go to the Israelites and you're going to tell them what, you're, what they're doing is wrong. And as you can imagine, Jeremiah is a little intimidated by that. He doesn't want to be the guy that has to tell the Israelites where they are wrong. So God encourages Jeremiah and he tells Jeremiah, I will be with you and I will give you strength and I will protect you. And so then he tells Jeremiah the list of all the things that the Israelites are doing wrong. And then when you come to verse 13, it says this. God says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cistern. You're kind of surprised when you read those verses because you're like, wait a minute, God, you just listed out a bunch of sins that the Israelites did. You talked about all the idolatry they did. You talked about the defiling that they did in the land. You can read other parts of the Bible and you find all these sins. And now, God, why are you saying there's just two things? What happened to all the other ones? Why are you ignoring all the other sins? Why only two? See, I think what God is doing right now, he's boiling down all of Israelite sins into two things. He's saying, number one, you've rejected me by not looking to me to meet your expectations and your needs and your desires. Sin number one, you don't think I can meet your needs. That's what God's saying that the Israelites are doing wrong. They don't think that God can meet their needs, their expectations, their desires, their hopes, and their longings. And he says, because you don't think I can meet your needs, then you're looking someplace else to get your needs met. So that's what God's saying to Jeremiah. All your sins are going to come down to two things. You don't believe that God can meet your dreams. You don't believe that God can satisfy you. So you have to look someplace else. And this is what Jeremiah is going to tell the nation of Israel. It's pretty simple when it comes down to it that the Israelites' biggest sin is they don't think God can meet their needs. It shouldn't be that big of a surprise because you look in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. God was meeting every single one of their needs. They had everything they needed. They had a perfect relationship with God, the perfect relationship with each other, everything they needed until the enemy comes in and says, hey, I think God's holding out on you. I think there's something missing in your life. There is something that you don't have that you would be better off if you had it. So what did Adam and Eve say? Oh, okay. And they walked over here and they ate from the tree that God told them not to. See, sometimes it's just as simple as not thinking God's going to meet our needs and we wander off and we look another place that we can get our needs met. And that's why it's so important to understand the character of Jesus. Because when we understand the character of Jesus, we understand the needs 
that he wants to meet in our life. When we understand, like last week we talked about that he says, I am your friend, that we know that we can go to him as a friend. Or when Jesus says, I am a God of compassion, we know that we can go to him and expect compassion. I talked about this three weeks ago that in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, there's this verse in the middle of this chapter that says that Jesus opens up and he says to his disciples, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Right in the middle of the gospel, here's a verse where Jesus says, this is what I'm like. Charles Spurgeon made the quote, he said, of the 89 chapters in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, there's only one place where Jesus stops and says, this is what I am like. That Jesus pulls back the curtain and says, this is what I'm like on the inside. This is what motivates me. It's pretty significant that Jesus did that. And why did Jesus do that? Why did he expose himself and say, I am gentle and humble? Because he wants us to know his characteristics. He wants us to know what drives him. He wants us to understand what motivates him. Jesus wants us to understand that what he is doing for us is not because he has to do it because God told him to do it. Everything that he does for us is because it's out of his compassion of gentleness and humility. Everything that he does, you're going to find gentleness and you're going to find humility. And so today as we continue to journey to the cross and look at the characteristics of Jesus, I want us to stop and look at Hebrew 12 verse 2. It's a verse where it says, Because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame. That's a pretty powerful statement. That Jesus says, I know the pain in the torture, in the agony of the cross. I know how much it's going to hurt. I know what it's going to be like to suffer on the cross. And I know the shame that's going to mi be mixed up with everything in that. But yet I'm going to do it because I know I'm going to receive joy on the other side of it. So what was that joy that was waiting for Jesus on the other side of the cross? What was the joy that motivated Jesus to say, okay, I'll go hang on that cross even though I know it's going to be painful? See, that was the joy that Jesus knew that people would come to repentance. The joy awaiting Jesus was the fact that people would be forgiven, that people would be restored, that they would be redeemed, that they'd be reconciled to God, that people's lives would be put back together. That was the joy that was awaiting Jesus. The joy that Jesus had of going to the cross is that knowing that he would be able to supply people with unlimited mercy and grace because what he was going to do on the cross. Jesus did it because he knew it would lead us to repentance. And Jesus gets joy out of us coming to repentance. Jesus gets joy out of our life being reconciled. Jesus gets joy out of wholeness coming into our life. I think you could say it's fun for Jesus to show compassion. It's fun for Jesus to forgive people. It's so much fun that he would go to the cross to endure that. Because he had the joy waiting him, that doesn't mean that it was easy for him to go to the cross. That was still difficult. That's why when Jesus was in the garden, he prayed, God, is there another way we could do this? It was so painful that he had to go to the cross that he said, God, is there another plan? Is there a plan B we could go to? 
There was so much anxiety that Jesus was anticipating that one of the Gospels tells us that Jesus was sweating blood. He knew the cross was going to be painful, but he went because of the joy that he knew he would receive when you receive his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy. I think it's fair to say that during this Lent season, that when we are taking serious sin in our life and we're coming to God repenting of sin, that that's making him very happy. That that's giving Jesus joy because that's what he wants to do in our life. I think it's so important at this time that we're going through that we remember that we are called to be imitators of Jesus Christ. We are called to do what Jesus did. And Jesus went to the cross to sacrifice his own life. We're going to the cross as well to sacrifice our life. But we're not doing it so somebody else can be saved. We're sacrificing our life so we can become more like Christ. So we can have the mind of Christ. So that we can be motivated by Christ. So that we can be like Jesus and empty our own will and say, God, I only want to do what you've called me to do. See, Jesus endured the cross because he knew that it would lead to our forgiveness. We can endure the cross. We can endure going through Lenten season, which is awkward and gets in your way, because we know we can become more like Christ at the end. We know that we will find greater freedom as we become more like Christ, so we're willing to put up with some interruptions in our life. I think now that we talk about that verse 2 and we understand the significance of that, I want to talk about the couple verses that surround uh, Hebrews 2, verse 2. In Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 4, it says this. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with the endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives to the struggle against sin. See, the book of Hebrews is a, is a great book, and it's written to a group of followers of Jesus that are very discouraged. They're struggling right now, and they're feeling a little bit hopeless. So this chapter comes in, and it's, it's a little mixture of, of pastoral care, of encouragement, and it's a little bit of reality of, hey, life is difficult, and it's hard, and obstacles in your life are actually going to be good for you, and it's mixed in with a little discipline. So you have this chapter that, that, that is written to really encourage the people not to give up, but to continue the race that's set before them, to not get discouraged. I think that's so important that we, we remember that right now because I think there's, there is a lot of people that are discouraged right now. And so we remember what the writer is saying here. And in this text, they're, they're using that illustration of a race. Some other um, translations say that instead of a race, you could say it's like a wrestling match, but it's some kind of contest. I like the word race because race here is the Greek word agon, which is where you get the word agony. So in this word of race, there's this undertone of, yes, your life is like running a race, but it's also going to have obstacles of difficulty and hardships and things that are not pleasant. It's a little discouraging to read because none of us want that. 
But yet it's the reality of life. We all know that life is hard. We all know it's difficult. And we know we're going to run into obstacles. So the writer here is just making it pretty obvious to us. If you jump down to verse 11, it continues that theme of this athletic training where it says, no disciple, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. See, the word trained in this way is the Greek word from where you get the word gymnasium. So it's this whole little metaphor that's put together about running this race, the training in the gymnasium. And if you put it all together, what, is, what, is, what are they trying to say? There's a lot of richness to trying to understand this metaphor. I think the first thing that you see in this metaphor is that first difficulties and challenges are inevitable. We're all going to run into them. They're going to be hardships are going to happen. Death is going to happen. Pain's going to happen. Sickness is going to happen. But it's part of the race that we're on. And the second thing that you see in this metaphor is that sufferings and difficulties are connected to peaceful harvest of right living. It's this paradoxical thought of like these hard things in your life are actually going to lead to something that is good. You think about exercise. Sometimes we do exercise and it hurts. Afterwards, you're in pain. And sometimes you think, well, that didn't do any good. I think that's kind of like when we go through hard things in life. Sometimes we're like, well, that was just hard. That didn't do any good. But I think the metaphor that they're trying to make us understand here is that sometimes in our weakness, we're the strongest. I mean, think about it when you work out. Maybe you're a weightlifter and, and you lift weights and like you can do a certain amount of weights every day and it's no big deal. But then the next day you add on some weights. And you do one set of reps, you're like, well, that wasn't that bad. But then you keep on doing another set of reps. Then another set of reps, you get done by the end of the workout, and you're like, wow, I feel really, really weak. I have no strength. That was really hard. It's easy to look at that workout and say, well, that just proved I was weak. No, that workout actually proved that you are stronger because you could actually lift more weights. You might be sore right now, but you actually increased your ability for endurance and lifting more weights. And I think that's what this chapter is trying to get us to see. Some of you are hurting right now because you've been exercising your faith a lot. You've been exercising your stamina a lot and your muscles are a little bit sore and you feel pretty weak, but actually you're stronger. When you walk out of the gym, yeah, you might feel a little weak, but you're actually stronger than actually when you walked in. But it's easy at that moment to get discouraged and to think, what good was this? I think a lot of us look back at 2020 and we think that was a hard year. That was a difficult year. Did anything good come out of it? And 2021 didn't get started too well either. And you feel like your faith has decreased. You feel like your ability to endure things has decreased. You feel like your confidence has decreased. I think a lot of people are feeling like, I just don't, I feel just weak. Could it be that what we've been through last year and what we're going through this year is actually making us stronger? We just don't know it yet because our muscles hurt really bad. I think we're a lot stronger than what we realize. I think we have to be careful right now because it's at those moments when you feel weak, you also feel vulnerable. And that's the moment the enemy likes to come in and say, yeah, I think God might be holding out on you. 
I think there's something over here that might satisfy your needs. I think we need to be careful right now that we're really focusing on the Lord. And I think it's such great timing that we have Lent right now. And we're looking forward to Holy Week and Easter to really keep our minds focused on what really matters in life and not be so distracted by all this other stuff that's happening that just makes us feel weak. As we're going into this week and into this season, it's easy to be discouraged. So I want to wrap up this message by, by going to Galatians 4. I want us to focus on what it means to be adopted by God. I want us to leave here today by talking about adoption. And I hope that you leave here today with a, a new confidence in who God is and the character of God in what he came to, set Je- came to send Jesus to do. I think adoption is one of the most beautiful illustrations that the Bible gives to us about God's love for us and how Jesus made that possible. In Galatians 4, verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. See, God did more for us on the day that we got saved than just give us salvation or give us eternal life or give us wholeness. He adopted us as his children. That's pretty powerful. I think it's one of the most powerful illustrations of God's love, and I also think it's one that we miss easily if we don't understand the fullness and the richness of what adoption really is. So I want to close this message by talking about adoption. See, in the Old Testament, there, there wasn't that, that there wasn't woven into the scriptures the whole idea of being adopted into God's family. I mean, obviously, family was very important all through the Old Testament, and there was provisions if a child needed to be adopted, but it wasn't this big theme. Like in the New Testament, the theme of being adopted by God and the family of God is really developed. And it's very significant. So it's kind of like the, the idea of adoption is something that was really brought out in the New Testament. And you can see why uh, the scripture, it says, in order to redeem those who are born under the law so that we might be adopted. So we need, had to be redeemed under the law. And adoption's a powerful word. The literal meaning in the Greek is from a, a, a lexicon. It says, to formally and legally declare that someone who is not one's own child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including rights to inheritance. See, the idea of adoption, that means that you are now part of God's family with full rights and privileges. But in order to understand adoption, I think it's very important to understand the, the Greek and the Roman Empire culture. See, back in the first century in the Roman Empire, if you had a child, you could discard that child. If you had a baby that was born and you didn't like that child, you could just give it away. Or maybe you had a young child and you didn't like them anymore and you didn't think that they were very worthwhile, you could sell the child or you could just drop it off at these different parts in the city where there's just, someone else could go pick up your child if they wanted or you could sell your child. A biological child in the Roman Empire did not have a whole lot of security. See, the idea was that child was born to you, and since you didn't get to pick it, you could discard it. 
Maybe there's something about the child you don't want, so you could discard it. So what would happen in that culture? Typically, when a baby was born, the midwife would be there to deliver the baby, and they would put the baby on the ground. And then the father would look at that child, and if the father decided, if the father decided they liked that baby, he would pick the baby up and then be taken into the family. But if the father's like, that's not what I wanted or what I expected, that baby would go off into these different parts through the Roman Empire where babies would be left there. They'd either be left there to die or maybe somebody else would go along and pick it up or maybe somebody would sell it. So that's kind of how it's not, that's not good. So, <clears throat> trying to compose myself here a little bit. So that's kind of the culture that you saw in the Roman Empire. The whole idea was that you didn't get to pick that child. So if that child was born and not really what you wanted, or maybe they're three or five, and you're like, no, this is just a disappointment, you can get rid of it. So these kids were extremely vulnerable that were biological children. So they would end up in these places where some people would go by and pick it up, maybe buy it or sell it. However, if there was a child that you wanted that was discarded, you could adopt the child. But this is interesting. In the Roman Empire, to adopt a child, they had extremely high standards. Suddenly, the idea in the law was if you are going to adopt a child, you know exactly what you're getting. So if you're going to adopt that child, you're adopting for life. If you're going to adopt a child, you can't one day decide, eh, don't like this anymore, and turn it back in. You have the child for life. And the whole idea behind the law was you know exactly what you're getting into. So you better make a good, solid decision. Because once you adopt, it's a permanent adoption. And so you can just imagine the people in the Roman Empire, when, they're start, when the apostles and the deacons are talking around town saying, Jesus died on the cross so that you could be adopted by God. You can imagine for them that, 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 that's incredible. That God would actually adopt you? That God would actually pick you apart from, from and say, I want you? That God would say, I want you part of my family and I want you part of my family for eternity? And I'm not going to give you up? And someday I'm not going to like just get disappointed in you and say, uh, turn that one back in. See, under the Roman law, this adopted child had four distinct rights. The first right is that the child would become a permanent part of the family. Parents couldn't disown a child that they adopted. The second thing is that an adopted child received a brand new identity. The old identity was gone any prior commitments, any prior mistakes, that was all erased. The third thing is that this new child had new rights and responsibilities that they had to participate in. And the fourth thing is that the inheritance for that child would start immediately. They wouldn't have to wait until the parents were deceased in order to get their inheritance. They started to get their inheritance right now. That's how they became matriculated into the family, that they became joint heirs with the other siblings and part of the family, that they all shared things together. And so you see in this culture that God used what happened in that culture to help us understand the adoption that he does for each of us. See, God shows us in the scripture that what he selects, he keeps for life.
and that what God chooses, he keeps for life. And when God chooses somebody, he gives you a brand new identity. And your past debts and your past sins, they're forgiven. And he takes you into his family and he gives you your inheritance. And he blesses you abundantly. See, God takes the ones that nobody else wanted. God takes the ones that other people discard. God takes the ones that had rebelled against their parents and got discarded. As you see this beautiful picture of love that God reaches down and saves and redeems people that would die on their own. It's a beautiful picture that God would reach down and pick up a baby that was left for dead. We know in Genesis that when God created Adam and Eve, he did reach down to the ground and he picked up dirt and breathed life, molded and breathed life into it. God could have discarded each of us and started fresh, but yet he picked us up off the ground and restored our lives. That's the picture of compassion that we see with God's adoption into his family. That God will do whatever it takes to adopt a person and he will adopt us out of any situation that we are in. He didn't have to do it, but he chose to do it. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, it's this beautiful verse that says, God, your God, will restore everything you lost. He will have compassion on you. He will come back and pick up the pieces from all the places where you were scattered. See, God could have easily overlooked each of us. But his heart is compassion said, I'm going to select you and I'm going to restore you. I think it's so important for us to remember adoption. Because there's so many times in our life I think that we feel discouraged and we wonder, is God, like, is he given up on me? Has God forgotten me? I think there's sometimes we think, wow, this situation I'm going through is so difficult. God obviously must have abandoned me. God doesn't abandon people that he adopts. It's out of his character and it's out of the illustration that he told us. God will never abandon us. And I think it's sometimes we're running this race and it gets so hard and our muscles are so sore, we think surely he's abandoned me. But I think our muscles are just sore because God promises that he will never abandon us. He's always with us. That's his character. See, the joy that was set before Jesus I think the joy that was set before Jesus is that knowing you and I would be adopted. I think that's what motivated him to endure the cross. Knowing that we would be adopted by God into his family and receive that inheritance and receive that internal life and receive the wholeness. That's the beauty of the cross. That's the beauty of the character of Jesus, is that he will do anything for you and I to give us that eternal security. And that's why we can go to him with full confidence knowing that he will meet every single one of our needs because he is the adoptive parent that will never give up, will never turn away, will never discard because he knew exactly what he was getting into when he adopted us. 
He had full disclosure. So God, I do thank you for today. And I thank you, Lord, for your message of adoption, that, Lord, you came into our life at a, at a strategic time to set us free, to give us eternal life, and to adopt us into your family. God, the concept of adoption is more than I can really understand. And the concept of your compassion is more than I can understand as well. But Lord, we want to understand it. Jake is going to lead us in a final song, and before he does that, maybe let's just give us a minute or two. He can strum his guitar, and I'll let you know when to close the final song, but let's take a minute or two just in silence to ask the Lord, how do you want us to respond to this message? Maybe God wants to speak to you through this message or encourage you. I don't know, but I just feel like let's take a minute or two to just be silent. If you're at home, I invite you to participate with us in this time. Just take a minute or two and just, just to be quiet. Just to be